Good evening, good morning, good day, wherever you're coming from in the world. I just wanted to say a quick thank you before this podcast starts for anyone who's listening, anyone who's taking the time to vote with their ears that they like this podcast. It means the world to me to see that people are listening, people are tuning in. If you would like to support me further, you're welcome to share this podcast. As you probably know, you already are, but just encouraging you to do so as it does help me. And also to uh, like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. Anyways, enough from me. Let's jump into the podcast. Welcome to the Getting Mental podcast, the number one mental health podcast in the world. I'm your host, Luke Ray, and today we are getting mental with Samara Zelnicka. Samara is a mindfulness practitioner and coach who has been featured in Forbes and Business Insider, to name a few. Samara is also the founder of Mindfulness Matters, an organization dedicated to helping businesses and individuals learn, uh, integrate mindfulness and emotional intelligence into their lives. Samara, thank you for joining. Thank you for having me, Luke Graham. So happy to be here. Thank you. So um, for those who don't know, how did you get to where you are now? What, what made you get into mindfulness and, and the business you're doing? So I used to work in the corporate world. I worked in fashion, wholesale distribution, and I was feeling burnt out and stressed out from my job. And I kind of had this instinct or intuition that there had to be something more, but more fulfilling, um, more exciting, more like alive feeling than sitting at a desk in an office. And I ended up going on a sales meeting in Brazil and I broke my foot boarding the, the plane home to Toronto where I was living at the time. And I ended up having to get a boot on my foot and going to, you know, at the beginning of, of the long Canadian or sorry, the short Canadian summers at the end of the long Canadian winters. And it made me realize the importance of health and wellness and the impact that it had on my life. And through that, that led me to do a yoga teacher training. Six months later, I went to Africa and I did something called the Africa Yoga Project. And then I left my job to pursue a career in wellness, which started with yoga and transitioned into coaching with always having a focus of mindfulness. That's kind of the, the short answer. That's beautiful. Yeah, I um, for me, I went through a few health issues it's been the last couple of months, you know, I've had really bad sleeping patterns. You know, I've been going to bed quite late. And the reason for that is just having a hard time falling asleep and a hard time maintaining sleep, what they call sleep onset insomnia. And, you know, when you get a few hours that you miss throughout the night, you're like, oh, it's okay. You know, I'll just deal with it. When it's over a few months period, you start to find a huge difference and you realize how important health is to you. Um, so I can definitely relate when you say how important your health is and you know mindfulness was always a thing that I came to for that um is there there's stuff that you do every single day and every single how would you say as a a practice throughout your life that prioritizes health such as mindfulness or is, is health just everything to you is it is it food and, and everything or it's definitely all encompassing so just to yeah. kind of note on what you mentioned around sleep, like sleep is just an absolute important pillar for health and wellness. So I totally get wanting to 
integrated mindfulness practice if you're not sleeping. And I actually disagree that like a couple of hours a night here or there is okay. I think sleep and like sleep for like seven to nine hours uninterrupted is really massively important to living a healthy lifestyle. And so creating parameters, whether it's making sure that you, you know, don't charge your phone in your bedroom, you have blackout shades, you know, you're reserving your bedroom for sleep and sex, you have a comfy pillow, you know, whatever it is that you're doing to make sure that you do get that adequate sleep. Sleep is like really the foundation to a healthy lifestyle. Um, so, you know, good on you for taking initiative in adapting to those things or then introducing a mindfulness practice or even a nighttime routine to support you in that. Uh, for me, yeah, health and wellness is everything. I mean, it's funny because I'm feeling a little bit under the weather today and I'm reminded of a that my brother shared with me, which is that, you know, a healthy man wants a hundred things and an unhealthy man wants one thing, his health. That's so, so accurate. You know, it's so true, right? Like if you don't have your health and you don't have anything. And so I think that I take the preventative approach, which is making sure that I'm prioritizing health and wellness throughout my life so that I'm saving myself, hopefully for damage later on in my life where it's, you know, reactive as opposed to prevention. Of course. And how I do that is, is mindfulness and meditation, which obviously we'll get into it's healthy eating. And that means, you know, eating all colors of the rainbow. That means making sure you're getting fruits and vegetables, drinking adequate, adequate water, um, means surrounding yourself with people that you love and who support you and setting boundaries around toxic relationships and kind of getting rid of that. You know, we have, we have relationships to everything in our life. You know, it's making sure that you feel abundant in your work and your career and that you're being rewarded for the things that you're putting out in the world. It's making sure that you're being of service, right? They're helping other people that are in need that you can help and support. Uh, as I mentioned, sleep is a really important pillar and then exercise, moving your body, right? So making sure that you're getting up daily, moving your body, whether it's a brisk walk or a more intense exercise where you're getting your heart rate up. And the mindfulness practice looks like stillness, right? So taking some time by yourself, taking some time to connect, whether that's through meditation, whether that's through journaling, you know, whether that's like swimming or running, meditation can look different for everyone, but really touching down on those things consistently is to me like absolutely necessary to health and wellness. That's huge. And what came up for me when you said that, you know, I think, so just, just to add to the sleeping stuff. So the huge difference for me when it comes to sleeping the last couple of nights, I've removed my phone from my room. So I've gone downstairs, you know, about eight 30, maybe eight o'clock. Sometimes I'll take um, my phone, put on charge downstairs, turn on flight mode, walk upstairs. And for a good 15 minutes, I'm like, Oh, I feel so lost without my phone. Like, what am I going to do? It's like, usually I'll lay in bed and I'll you know, read articles and research and all that kind of stuff. And which has its benefits, of course, but what it does do is it keeps you up the blue light, right? Even when I'm wearing glasses. And so the last two nights, you know, I usually go to bed quite late, which I've been trying to change for a long time. It used to be about one in the morning. And for the last two nights, I've been going into bed about, you know, nine, nine 30 after doing a bit of work, my phone downstairs and I'll start to get tired after about 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes of laying down, reading a book, you know, just with a, a very dim light on. And, and there's this rejuvenating feeling as well, knowing that you're kind of going towards a natural rhythm. So I think the thing you said there, that the huge part of that is having your phone outside of your room, 
the question that I want to ask myself is what is most natural for us to be doing? And it's not laying in bed with this square device beaming light at us, all these mm-hmm. stimulus like Instagram and Facebook and YouTube coming at our face. Well, all of those things are meant to be addictive, right? It's kind of like video games or like scrolling on your phone. That's why there's like these endless scrolls of, like you said, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and they all go automatically onto the next video because there's like, it's like a reward center in our brain that gets triggered and we see these bright lights. And what happens when we look at our phones at night is it does the opposite. It um, stops the trigger of melatonin because the red, the blue light, or is, is it the blue light? I, n- I never remember if it's the blue light or the red light. That It's actually all the lights. Thing. It's the blue. And there's the one light that doesn't decrease melatonin is the red light. So if you wear um, the red looking blockers, they block out everything besides the red light because it doesn't reduce melatonin. Oh, interesting. Got it. That makes sense. So yeah, you know, it's like what's happening in your brain is telling you, you know, it's then playing out in a reaction. That's interesting because usually we get a spike of cortisol after 10 PM, which is why sometimes you can feel really tired at like nine, nine 30. But then once you surpass that hump, you're like, Oh no, I, I can stay up for another two hours. So it's, it's funny that you're, you're experiencing that, that like at that nine 45, 10 o'clock, you naturally fall into sleep because those are your natural circadian rhythms. Yep. Huge. And I read also that having foods at a certain time. So seven o'clock, uh, 7 PM is my last meal now. And then I wake up around 8 PM. I mean, AM, sorry, not 8 PM. That'd be funny. 8 AM is my, my first meal in the morning. And I find that when I do that as well, it's, it's really weird because I thought if I went to bed at one o'clock, usually I'd have to progressively build it back, but I just lay down and take my time with it and just try and stick to this rhythm. And I find that I'm tired after about 30 minutes of laying in bed. So it's perfect. Mm. Yeah. And so with things that feel addictive to us and we have reactions, right? So it's like you said, like those first like 15 or 20 minutes, uh, it's that knee jerk reaction. Where's my phone? What do I do without my phone? I'm lost without it. You know, normally you have a thought or you have a question, you have a thought, you want to write it down in your notes. You have a question, you want to Google it. You think about somebody or something, you want to send them a message, right? And so like, those are the natural reactions. And usually we have we can just grab our phone and do all those things. So it takes a little bit of time for you to realize, okay, I can't do that. It's also okay. I'll remember that thought. I'll remember to message that person. You know, I also have, um, I keep a notepad in my room too. So sometimes, you know, if you want to, you know, you're like OCD and you're like, oh no, I'm actually going to forget this. You actually can write it down in your notepad and then it's there in the morning. And you know what, when you're not around your phone, you actually like don't forget things as easily because our brains are really powerful and we can retain a ton of information. And if you're someone who does forget things easily, then there's a, there's a solvable problem for a solvable solution for that as well. Yeah. That's a huge distinction. I think that's where mindfulness comes in as well. You know, seeing your phone or having your phone in your room with you is one thing. It's kind of like a a battle half lost there already. But then when it comes to actually using your phone, I think so just to preface, you know, for me, mindfulness isn't just about meditation or just about yoga or the, the commonly known ways we, you know, engage with the mindfulness. Mindfulness is also active as well in the sense that you can choose mindfulness by your thought processes, being conscious of your triggers, your behaviors and the result of those behaviors, and also by using technology, you know, and 
and the things that you engage in foods, these kind of things. So mindfulness to me, isn't just about meditating. It's also about having a conscious way of being. Is that what you've experienced as well with, with uh, mindfulness? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I define mindfulness as being aware, right? Mm-hmm. So going from co- subconscious to conscious and so much of that is slowing down. So much of that is turn, you know, turning inwards, asking yourself these questions, building in these pauses, um, which could come in the form of a deep breath, you know, having a glass of water, uh, mindfully eating, like, and really chewing your food, going outside and having a, like a breath of fresh air or watching the leaves or the birds. So it's just kind of appreciating what is when we have so much stimulus coming towards us, it's almost like sensory overload and we feel like busy all the time. So we don't have the opportunity to ask ourselves, Hey, am I answering this email or am I answering this question? Or am I having a reaction out of a pattern out of something that was ingrained in me that I learned in a pivotal age as a result of an experience. And when we develop a mindfulness practice, there was a space between stimulus and response, right? So something happens there's a space where we got to decide, do I want to react? And that could be like angry, sad, happy, you know, whatever that looks like, or do I want to ask myself, well, how do I feel in this moment? And what feels real for me right now? And that's a really big distinction because often we're programmed, you know, we're programmed to act in a certain way as a result of experiences that we had. And our neurons actually create neural pathways and create grooves in our mind that make that easier, right? So if you think of an experience that you maybe have had or a reaction you've had to something or a spiral, like a negative spiral that you've been in, you're like, all right, I've, I've been in this situation before, right? Or I've been in something like this, the person was just different or the job was just different. And it's like, everywhere you go, there you are, you're the common denominator in these things. And that's an opportunity for you to look at yourself and be like, all right, well, this is the change that I want to make. And by building and developing a mindfulness practice, which is, you know, stillness and pauses and can look a lot of different ways, then you have that ability to choose. Do you think technology is affecting that? Absolutely. Like 100%. And I think that there's both positive and negatives to technology. You know, we get to be having this conversation and recording this podcast while I'm in the U S and you're in Australia. And that's a a wonderful thing. And, you know, we don't have to ask for directions anymore and we, you know, get to play our favorite music at the touch of a button, you know, and those are just some small, small things that technology allows for. But I think that again, we rely on it a lot. It takes away from, certain social interactions but mostly it takes away from you know the quiet time that we have with ourselves you know for example being at you know when you're sitting alone or you're doing you know your first instinct is like oh I'm gonna grab my phone or if you're feeling uncomfortable and often when you're feeling discomfort is when change like there's an opportunity for change right you're like oh I'm gonna grab my phone and I'm gonna mask or I'm gonna get myself out of this by distracting myself. So I think that like most things, there's a light and a dark, there's a good and a bad. And so boundaries around technology are really key and important. I think during this technological age or age of information where we do have everything at our fingertips, it's kind of like 
smoking in the 60s you know it's like everyone smoked because it was like fun and addictive and like looked cool and you did it with your friends and then you learned that it was bad for you right and then now to the point where like no one really smokes and obviously technology is I I don't think we'll ever not use it but I think we're in that age where it's like consumption 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 without Mm. really and truly understanding the negative effects but when you look at like suicide rates among teens or you look at the epidemics of depression and anxiety amongst younger people but also like amongst us as a society it's drastically increased and I, I definitely think that has a lot to do with the increase of our reliance on technology yeah it's very troubling you know I read a book called the shallows which talks about the effects of the internet on our brains and it says that not only does it affect our capacity to contemplate and to um, be able to reflect and to think deeply about things it also affects our capacity to have concentration and the technologies that came out in the past. So the, he gave reference in this book to the clock when it came out, you know, the clock's great. You could organize a time to meet up. You could organize a time to go to X place. But the downside was you lost the feeling of the daily rhythm of life. You know, you, you became very regimented. Then with the maps, you know, it was good because you could see where you're going and, and all this kind of stuff. But the downside was you forgot intuitively the lay of the land. And he said, you know, these things are all minor, but with technology, the huge difference is it's completely rewiring our prefrontal cortex, our hippocampus and all the parts of our brain, you know, that, that need to be used. And the upside of technology, like you said, there's a light and a dark, is that we can scan for stuff quicker. We can distinctively see stuff visually much quicker. But the downside is that comes at a cost. And that cost is what I spoke about before about when I try to go to bed without my phone. You know, I've used a phone since I was 13 years old or something. And when I go to bed and I tried to not use my phone, it's like, I've lost something. It's like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, where's my phone? I'm freaking out because I'm addicted to it. And that's just the matter of the fact. Right. And there's no shame in saying it because we all are. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's really important to, to step away and create boundaries, but how do we do that? How do we create boundaries with technology? Well, something like we talked about already is like charging your phone outside of your room. You know, that's like a really key boundary that you can do. I mean, I like to do that. I'm definitely not someone who does that all the time. I can do more. Um, So I think it's also being kind of gentle with yourself around building a new habit. But that would be a great way to start because then the first thing in the morning, you're not turning over and looking at your phone. The last thing at night, you're not turning over and looking at your phone. So, you know, if you have a partner, you have a chance to connect with them. If you are on your own or even with a partner, you have a chance to connect with yourself through meditation, through journaling. Like you said, like reading a book or getting just into like the natural circadian rhythms of your body that you, you know, want to that our bodies generally naturally want to go towards, you know, our our bodies always want to have that propensity towards health. So I would say something like that is really good. I also was speaking on a panel. uh, Now this is about a year ago, but the, there was a doctor there and she was sharing the stats around like having your phone near you. And she said like having your phone in sight, creates like a certain amount of anxiety and then like the let's say you have your phone in your room but it's not in plain sight there's less anxiety versus when your phone is outside of the room entirely so I think you know even just trying those little 
exercises. I know sometimes I'm distracted because I work on my phone and my computer. So I toggle between the two of them, but it actually ends up taking me out. So I'll purposely put my phone on the other side of the room. And then it's like, okay, out of sight, out of mind. I can like get into a flow state or like really focus. So I think it's setting like small parameters like that, such as charging your phone outside of your room overnight, you know, placing your phone. It can be for a certain time block, like two hours for uninterrupted time. So you can get into like idea creation or flow state. Um, a big thing, I, I always keep my phone on silent. So it's like, I don't check my phone unless, you know, no one can kind of reach out to me unless I'm consciously checking it, which happens, you know, hundreds of times a day, obviously like all of us, but and for people who are parents or, you know, dealing with an elderly parent, you can set settings on your phone that like it will ring if it's just that person or something. So you can set like safety parameters. I think for social sites like Instagram and things like that, um, you can put a timer so that you know, and then it stops you from being, you know, you can like, you've reached your daily limit and then that's also a trigger and invitation to like put the phone down. So those are some helpful ways that I feel like you can monitor your usage a little bit. Making sure that you're also scheduling in time to be outside in nature. So like the same way you would schedule a meeting or you know, anything that's important to you, you also schedule on time for a workout or time for a walk or things, you know, that really help to strengthen curiosity and playfulness and then if you are going for a walk leave your phone at home or leave your phone in the car you know it's like again using these opportunities to be present when you have them and then also when you're working or you're socializing or you're doing other things that you do want to have your phone for like be present to that as well you know so it's creating this like on off switch of it's like you said, okay to be addicted to your phone, to be on it and use it when you need it. And then also just as important to take breaks from it. Is that what you think mindfulness really is? Just being able to recognize, I guess, how something is affecting you and then take right action away from it. You know, like you said, Absolutely. on and off. Absolutely. Like either taking right action away from it or towards it. Because I think that the misconception around mindfulness is it like or even meditation is what, like it makes you like a perfect human right or it makes you be like totally at peace and don't get me wrong these practices make you infinitely more joyful and at peace but like we also all deal with stresses in our life and part of being human is part of is surviving and so how do we survive is we're constantly recognizing threats and opportunities in our lives so that is something that's going to happen you know to exist and depending on your work and your life, you know, if you're among sitting in the Himalayas meditating all day, you probably have limited stress and, and maybe you do achieve that, that blissful state a lot easier that all of us down here can also achieve, but we're also in the everyday humdrum of life. And I've always wondered about that, you know, when you see the, the monks teaching about mindfulness and meditation and they've got this beautiful like Himalayan mountains and they're sitting there meditating with their robes on and, it seems like it'd be a lot easier to do it that way. For sure. I mean, there's less distraction and there's less stress, right? And they, but, you know, not to discredit that life because of course there's people that are born into that, but it also takes a lot to leave what you know 
to choose doing that and to recognize that, hey, like actually all of these stresses that we deal with that we think are so important, like success and power and money actually mean nothing, right? So like even to get to that place and that could come from a place of, oh my God, I'm at rock bottom. I don't know what else to do or it can come from a place of enlightenment or it can come from, you know, that's that's the journey of those people. But I think it's being able to absolutely recognize your patterns, recognize what's working and what's not to also always be kind and compassionate towards yourself. Right. So like there's times where, like I said on this podcast, like I don't charge my phone outside my bedroom all the time. Like that's also okay. And then I notice a lot more like negative thought patterns or spirals or, you know, I'm feeling off or anxious. And I also know, okay, well, I have these really awesome practices that I know are going to help me, you know, and if I was a perfect human, I would do them all the time every day, but I'm not, you know, but I know that when I really need them, I can also rely on them. And I think that comes from having a deep practice to practice that level of discernment and to not have to be like on one extreme or another, because I think that when we're in extremes, whether it's diet, exercise, meditation, and mindfulness, really anything, that's kind of where we get in trouble because, you know, life isn't like predictable and there's so many things that are beyond our control. So we have to be able to balance and be flexible with whatever is being thrown at us. Yeah, that's huge. And it reminded me of poker. You know, I don't play poker, but I'm reading a book at the moment um, talking about how you can't be in control of everything in your life. And what poker teaches you is how to recognize and know your chances of you know, how much you're in control versus how much you're not. And coming back to mindfulness again, I think that's a perfect way to realize that, you know, realize that sometimes you can't control not getting enough sleep, you know, as much as you do the right things in your current way of being in your current amount of knowledge, you can't always do that. So I think, you know, again, the message I'm receiving is it's, you know, radical acceptance and radical compassion for where you are right now. And knowing that eventually you will get to where you need to go if you just be patient and kind to yourself. Absolutely. That's a huge part of a mindfulness practice. It's massive. Mm. So when we say mindfulness practice, we mentioned a few things, you know, like keeping your phone outside your room. And those are small things, mindfully choosing to do the right behaviors are going to benefit you in the future. What are some other more conscious or direct ways of, of doing mindfulness that, that you do or that you teach your clients to do? Sure. So with mindfulness practices, there's integrated practice and there's dedicated practice. Dedicated practice is sitting in meditation. That could be anywhere from 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes daily. Um, again, consistency is key here. So if you're like, well, I only have five minutes and better to do five minutes every day as opposed to like 30 minutes once a week. And so committing to that meditation practice is really helpful as a dedicated practice and something that you can consistently do. And it's comparable to like doing a bicep curl. Like you're going to the gym and you're getting stronger. You're going and, you know, doing this bicep curl. An integrated practice is compared to like, okay, well now I'm moving and I need to lift boxes into the truck, right? So it's like you use your dedicated practice so that when you're in your actual life, stronger. And so what that looks like from a mindfulness perspective, that can look like something like a stop practice, which is, 
okay, you're triggered by something. Again, that can be a friend, a family member, an email, an experience, the weather. You know, there's so many things that can trigger us. Let's stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. And really even just the first step of that, which is the stop practice, which is just the sacred pause, already is redirecting how we're thinking about things. It's already redirecting that ability to then choose a reaction as opposed to going into kind of a knee-jerk response. Yes. Three breaths when you're in your regular life. So most of us breathe into our chest, which stimulates our sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of our body that triggers fight or flight. Right. So again, getting us into that sort of like survival heightened, increased adrenaline, increased cortisol. That's how like majority of us breathe on a regular basis. So if we stop and we breathe all the way down to our belly through our diaphragm, what that does is it stimulates our parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest. So immediately lowering our cortisol, our adrenaline and dropping us into our limbic brain, which is our emotional brain out of the prefrontal cortex, which is executive functioning. And it calms us down. So we're not in that heightened state of reactivity, but we get into that place of emotion and response. And then we're able to choose differently. And sometimes your first reaction is the right response, right? Like sometimes that's also okay. Um, but at least it's being done consciously as opposed to subconsciously, which makes a world of difference. Yeah, that's huge. And speaking into to meditation, I just wanted to add to that as well. The paradox about meditation is you become more aware so you think that you're thinking more, but you're really just aware of your thoughts more. At least that's been my experience with meditation. You know, I started in 2012. And, you know, when I first started meditating, I didn't think I was doing it right until probably about two or three years in, at least. I was kind of, I was thinking I was doing it right. And then I wasn't really. And then it kind of clicked to me. This, you know, kind of have like a little bit of a Satori moment, you know, a spiritual moment where it, it awakens up for you. And I had that. And then from there, it's kind of shifted. What I'd realized, I mean, up until now, it's like, geez, my brain is so chattery. And it's like, but the good thing is that you know that it's not just about awareness, but also meta awareness as well. Um, so I think that's a, a huge distinction when it comes to what was the two words you said? You said uh, dedicated and dedicated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, the dedicated practice is, is definitely essential for that. With the integrated practice, so it's about really breaking the pattern of the uh flight or fight response you know whatever, whatever scale that is on it's about breaking that pattern through breathing and and through through mindfulness really but pausing and stopping you know it, it seems so simple and almost like it's like well that's not going to do anything but it's really effective and mm. yeah and, and, and it's easy to know that as well and i'm thinking to my life little moments that i've had where i could have just done that and would have made the world of difference but it's, it's so, so crucial. Um, and especially breathing as well. So that's, that's huge. Um, is there a common thread that you find with your clients with what they struggle with when it comes to mindfulness, you know, in every kind of thing that we do, there's always a common theme on what is hard. 
mm-hmm. is there something with mindfulness that you find people really struggle with? Well, I think you nailed it in the sense of a lot of times when people are committing to a dedicated practice, they don't think they're doing it right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is a common misconception is like, there's no right or wrong way to do it. And absolutely building a mindfulness practice doesn't mean you become devoid of thoughts. It's just, you become an observer to those thoughts, right? So instead of, you know, them taking over you, you get, I get, you get to choose. It's kind of like clouds floating in the sky and you're like, okay, I see that cloud and I see that cloud, but I'm not the cloud, you know? And so, so it's, it's really showing up is the work right? If you can sit and have a wonderful meditation or a horrible meditation or a meditation, like, you know, there's not really like a good or bad. It doesn't really like fall into that category, but sure. We like to put labels on things and it helps us understand things better as a human species. And so it's really just about showing up and doing it as opposed to like having a good one or a bad one. And like you said, you know, you showed up consistently And after two or three years, there was this sort of moment where it clicked into place. And it's like anything. It's like, let's say you were going to play hockey for the first time or play football for the first time. It's like, you're not going to be good. You know, it's going to take time. And yeah, it's going to take a few years for you to get it on that field and feel really confident and know what you're doing and score lots of goals. And so it's similar with a meditation and a mindfulness practice is it takes time to build and develop. And because, you know, a lot of the times people think like, well, I'm just sitting here. I'm not actually doing anything, but you're, you're in the practice of being, which is harder than doing anything. Than not doing anything. Exactly. And that takes time to develop. And so I would say a huge, huge thread or pattern is people don't think they're doing it right. And people think that it should be easy. Huge. Now there's no right or wrong way to do it, but what is a good starting point for someone? So, you know, I think having something guided is really helpful in developing a practice. We have um, on our website, we have uh, like a five day meditation challenge with five recorded meditations and then also guides that go along with it. It's our mindfulness toolkit and there's tons of stuff out there. I know for me, when I was starting my meditation practice after going through a yoga teacher training and thinking like, oh yeah, I'll just get into yoga because that drops me into my body and that moves energy through me. All things that feel very true and real for me. But I was like, oh, the meditation thing isn't really for me. You know, I was like sitting there fidgeting and wasn't bought in. And what was really helpful for me was having something guided. I did Oprah and Deepak Chopra's 21 day meditation so again having you know something guided something that holds you accountable headspace has a really great like intro I believe as well so there's a lot of great resources out there that can introduce you to it I'm someone that operates a lot in my prefrontal cortex so I like to rationally understand things so like the more information I can get on like why I should be doing something and the benefits it's going to help is great And then it's like, okay, we got that information and now we just need to trust and we now just need to practice. And so I would say, you know, guided is really helpful. Also um, bundling it with a habit that you're already doing. So bundling it with like, you know, let's say every night you brush your teeth. So every time you brush your teeth, 
and you add five minutes and you sit in meditation or you know you make your coffee in the morning great right after you make your coffee or while the water is foaming up or something like that you add those five minutes so it's something that you're already doing that you can then just tack on that extra time so it's not like oh I'm, when am I going to do this my day's filling up it's so busy like I'm going to do it at a different time every day it's like no really committing to doing it at the same time every day and bundling it with something else that you're already doing is really going to be helpful at gaining success in creating this habit. Like don't take your phone to the toilet and just be present. That's another thing as well. Um, everyone, everyone always does that. So that's could, could be a small thing that you can do um, and not taking the phone to the shower. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I mean, I do it sometimes and your phone's just sitting there. And like you said before, your phone is in the room and you're, you got your attention on it. You're always looking over it. So have you got a message yet? And I think the thing is as well, people need to realize and have compassion as well, that it's not just that you're an inattentive, uh, how do you say, if you've got bad ADHD, you're not very attentive, whatever. The technology is made for us to be addicted to. It's designed, you know, millions of dollars for us to want to stay longer on it. It's the same thing with Google as well. You know, the, the more data points they have, the more you click around on the actual screen that you're using, the more data points they have and the more money they make. And, you know, there's lots of things we can say about that, about the whole industry. But I think the important part right now is that having compassion for yourself and realizing that despite, you know, using your phone and having bad quote unquote willpower, um, that it's, it's not, it's not all you and that you should put things in place to, to put it away because with the phone in front of you, sitting right in front of you, it's going to distract you. Absolutely. Yeah. Boundaries are really, really, really important, right? It's like, again, you know, putting yourself in a situation where there's temptation, you know, let's say you're going to a buffet or I, I don't know, you know, maybe you're like putting parameters that, you know, you're only going around once or, mm. you know, you're going to a amusement park and you're making sure that you're wearing the seatbelt or you're putting everything in place when you go on this like scary ride. Right. So it's about setting boundaries and that like you can go to an amusement park and get the thrill and have the best time, but you're also doing it safely. And so it's, it's like kind of putting those kid glove on, like those kids glove on kids gloves on when navigating your own life and your own phone. I mean, I know sometimes I'm like, Oh my God, when I get the screen report at the end of my week and it's like, you've been on your phone on Sunday. for many hours a day. Yeah. No. And I justify it. I'm like, well, I was working. Like that was like, I was working yeah. you know? and you, or it was from when I was driving or, you know, things like that. But it's, uh, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it definitely eats up a lot of our time and some of that is for a reason and some of that is good, but I think everything done with intention you know, I know for me, if I'm like, okay, I'm going into this day and I want to get X, Y, and Z done. So some of that will maybe have to be on my phone or this and that. That's totally okay. Cause there's an intention around it versus, you know, sometimes a few hours of a day could go by and I'm like, what did I do? Because I'm toggling between tasks, right. Which is okay. I'm, I did a little bit on my phone and then I'm doing some on my computer and then, Oh, I got a message. And then, Oh, I'm running to do this or that. And then it's like, 
you lose like 20% of your brain power just by toggling between things. So you lose your, your efficiency and your optimization and your productivity in a way you would if you, again, time blocked, okay, I'm spending two hours on this task and I can go and check my phone or whatever that looks like for you. But really being clear and setting some boundaries and parameters can be really, really helpful in productivity, but also in like peace and stillness and finding that, that peace and joy within yourself that you know everyone i think is striving for and realizing if you're a you know heavy pfc prefrontal cortex executive thinker that the science indicates there's no real such thing quote unquote as multitasking Mm. you know sitting there trying to complete a task whilst doing replying to texts and then also playing music and then doing this and this and this it feels like you're doing more but you're not (laughs) And like you said, you lose that, you said 20%, right? Of that, that function in your brain. And whereas if you just spend two hours a day focusing on that one thing, you get far more done. So much more. And I mean, when it comes to emotional intelligence and connecting with people, whether it's your team at work, friends or family, there's so much nuance. So there's so much that happens in between what's actually being said, right? what people aren't actually saying, what they're feeling, what they don't have the tools to be able to articulate. And that only happens when you're being present and actively listening to somebody, right? So although you can be having a meal or a meeting with someone while you're also, you know, on a phone call or texting or looking something up, so much of that moment is lost because what happens is really subconsciously that person just doesn't open up as much because they're like, oh, the person's checked out or they're not actually listening or there's a distraction and that throws us off. And so a big thing that I do with my clients, especially ones in the corporate space is like one of the first things we teach is active listening. So listening, not with the intention to respond, but listening just to listen. And when we do that exercise originally, people are actually feel like uncomfortable because they don't remember the last time they were actually just listened to without any distraction and it feels weird (laughs) and then you know we you know do this thing where we'll have the mirror back like what I heard you say is and then eventually get into feeling what I heard you feel is and it builds such a stronger connection and rapport and when you're especially in a remote work environment and so much of your interactions have to do with that executive functioning brain and conversation and is very task oriented you lose the humanity of it you know which is what makes us feel which fosters psychological safety which is that feeling of being seen and heard and those unwritten rules and norms that make us feel connected and what make us happier and make us feel um fulfilled ultimately so it can it it it, it's exactly what you said is like these all things all these things are simple which is what i love about them because anyone can do it you know you don't need a million dollars or you don't need fancy equipment it's like anyone can do it and it's so simple but it's not easy right and so it does require commitment and like can be uncomfortable um, and that that want and desire and need to grow. I would imagine 
and you know, I don't know the other kinds of people that you have on your podcast, but you're an amazing listener. And I would imagine that that's like maybe uncomfortable for some of the people that you talk to. I don't know if you ever get that feedback. Um, I mean, not, not particularly, no, I mean, I don't think people would say it to me directly, but uh, to be honest with you, when you said that, I was thinking to myself, am I, am I listening? You know, am I, am I going to, cause when you were saying stuff, I'm, you know, this is my fourth episode that I'm doing. Right. Um, oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So, and for, for the most part, it's been people that I've met before and everything. And besides this right now, I've only spoke to one of the person who's, who's been someone I hadn't met before. So, you know, that there, there was a level of nervousness um, coming mm. into this and I think there will be for a while and that's, it is what it is, you know? Sure. So I was thinking to myself, when you said that, I'm like, have I been thinking of questions as you're saying stuff? And I realized I was. And as soon as you said that, you know, I, I straight, I was like, yeah, just let go of the outcome and realize that there's no point. There's no point worrying about what you're going to say next, because, you know, just in general conversations flow when you let go of the outcome. So absolutely that's that's the key it's like there's that element of flow right that just happens organically when we're not planning and I'm a Mm -hmm. big fan like with my coaching clients I have a coaching program set up where there's modules and videos and worksheets and a lot of people feel safe within a container right of sort of like this is step one and this is step two and this is what's going to happen after here and so I think it's important to create a container But in that container, because sometimes that's like the boundaries that we're talking about with technology. So it's like this container allows for flow to happen. So I do think like planning questions and events or things like that, like is key, you know, doing your research is important, you know, having a sense of who you're having a conversation with is going to be pivotal to your success. And also being okay with like throwing that all out the window if other things come up or the conversation takes another turn. And I think, you know, just from the little I know from you, from our conversation, I think you're going to do amazing at this because you are a really great listener. And it does feel like on the other end that you really are listening as opposed to like listening to think about the next question. And I, I say that with utmost admiration because most people aren't like that. It's probably just the HD camera. Yeah, it's the HD. You have great quality. Like this is just a wonderful experience. You're just you're killing it, Luke. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I I think you know I, I think it's meditation that I've done in the past, and you know I, I keep forgetting that I've been doing this so long. You know, since I was 18 years old, since 2012, I've been meditating almost every single day. And yeah, when I when I to be honest, when I stopped doing it, I noticed my my brain get busier and my attention become less attentive. Um, so I think it's just so important to have, like you said before, a consistent practice that anchors you into reality. And this is the reoccurring theme I, I think I'm hearing a lot. And actually, funny enough, when you mentioned the uh, conscious listening part, you know, listening to actually listen, it reminded me when I read on your page, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Chad, Chad Meng Tan, is that his name? Mm. Search Inside Yourself? Yeah. yeah. That was the first book on mindfulness that I read. And oh, that's funny. yeah, back in 2013 or something. And that's, it was a really good book. So it taught me, you know, about emotional intelligence. Um, I think he speaks about the four different types of emotional intelligence in that, as opposed to the five that Daniel Goleman uses in his book. Um, and 
and also loving kindness as well. You know, growing up as uh, I, was, I had very bad social anxiety when I was younger, you know, just bad anxiety in general. And I used to drink a lot and party a lot and, and do all the kind of stuff that I guess most Western people do. And, uh, you know, there was always a kind of a, a feeling of being ashamed about uh, being socially anxious. It's like, why am I socially anxious? What's wrong with me? You know, what's wrong? What have I done? Like, why, why do I deserve this? You know, all the things that you say to yourself when you're ashamed of yourself in a way. And that meditation, you know, whilst it didn't work the first, second, third, fourth, or whatever time it was, consistently over time and, and also with mindfulness, it's led me to a place of accepting all those parts of, of who I am, you know? And again, like you said before, you know, you have the light and the dark side. And I think, and this is going pretty deep with it all, but I think mindfulness is also that as well. Or the practice of aiming towards becoming more conscious is that as well. Recognizing that you do have dark sides. And just because you do have dark or bad sides, you're not a bad person. You're just human. Duality, right? And it's like the great or the light side, the good wouldn't feel so good if the bad didn't feel so bad, right? Like if you kind of are just operating, I call it vanilla coasting, right? If you're just kind of coasting along vanilla, but you never get those like super like dark chocolate fudge moments or like that actual life experience, then what's it all for? And I think uh, the practice of meditation and mindfulness actually brings things more into equilibrium, brings things more into balance where you don't actually have like such crazy highs and such crazy lows because you are acting from a place of consciousness more, but it takes time to get there. And you also have to experience it in order to know, you know, what you want and what you don't. Yeah. And the dark sides, all the, the heavy periods in your life, they teach you stuff that you need to know about yourself. Exactly. The only way out is through, right? And so it's like a, a beautiful roomy quote that I'm totally going to butcher, but it's like, you know, something of like the light enters like through the sliver of darkness. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's that is where we learn and we grow because when things are great things are great we're like wow I'm great things are amazing you know and it's like when things are challenging is when it shines a light on what we need to focus on and where we need to grow where we need to put energy into what we need to explore and um and yeah and I think that that's really a key component to personal growth, you know, as it plays into the realm of emotional intelligence, as it plays into the mindfulness space. But, you know, under this kind of bucket and idea of personal growth in general is understanding that it's not calling, it's not called growing giggles, it's called growing pains, you know? And so that's, that's part of it. And as you said, that's, that's the reality of being human. Like that's what we get to, experience in this lifetime right so having gratitude because like the opposite of growth is death so it's like you grow or you die right or stagnation mm -hmm. and that doesn't feel good either do you have any advice for people who are going through a dark time you know in sydney at the moment in particular i know a lot of people who are going through a dark time just being locked inside and the fear of what's happening in the world and we don't have to go into it but just yeah i mean yeah i'm sure you've experienced it this whole pandemic thing has been crazy for everyone. 
It has. And I know that you guys are back in lockdown right now, which is unfortunate. I have a client that lives out in Sydney and, you know, I'm just kind of hearing firsthand, but, you know, I think something always that we have to remember is like, whatever you believe in God, the universe, anything, you know, like has its own timeline. Right. And this too shall pass like anything else. So it's kind of like remembering that holding onto that hope this too shall pass. Like it is a season. And I like to kind of like think about like times in our lives as seasons. And so the seasons don't necessarily need to reflect what's actually happening on the outside. Like right now in Australia, well, I actually don't know what season you guys are in because you're the opposite. We're in, just in spring now. Okay. So you're in spring, but it may feel like winter because it may feel like despair and like hard. And so internally it may be different. And this winter may be six weeks or it may be six months. And we don't actually know what that is, but know that like every season always correlates with functionality, right? Like spring is like new rebirth. And then summer is like this summer season that we get to be out and do all these things and fall is for harvesting and planting seeds and then winter is for hibernation and to build things and concoct and kind of be underground and so it's understanding that like this too shall pass every season has a reason trusting in that which is a little bit more of obviously an esoteric like big picture answer which is important to hold on to and then you know um what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, hopefully there's some tips and tools that we've both shared in this podcast that are relevant for people to be able to implement, um, which are really powerful. Like meditation and mindfulness can be really helpful in a dark and challenging time. And then it also acts as maintenance during those times that are great and happy. You know, I just got married two weeks ago and my mindfulness practices have kicked into high gear because awesome. it was so overwhelming, but in a beautiful way of having all of our friends and family in one place and everyone loving and, and kind, but A, to be able to receive that and to be able to really be present to that takes mindfulness, right? To really be present. You know, so many people say like their wedding just flew by. And of course I felt the same way, but I also felt really present too the experience of it all. And that's as a result of the practices that I have. So it's like these mindfulness practices help you in the good times and the bad. And although you may turn to them and build them in those darker times, they also really help you in, in the in the better times as well, because they help you enjoy like a wonderful meal with a family member, or they help you enjoy a good catch up with a friend or a spring walk. And although there's things in lockdown that of course you're that you know you're not able to do and that have been taken away there's still a lot of good and so I feel like with mindfulness it slows you down a little bit and because you then get to choose your thoughts it's like the practice of gratitude like when you change how you look at things the things you look at change and so if you're like wow I'm grateful that I even just like get to get up and have this podcast interview today or I'm grateful that I get to open my windows and like see the trees starting to bud or wow I get to go down to the beach and put my toes in the sand or you know things like that then you start seeing more of that so your mindfulness practice will help you be a little bit more conscious on the things that are going well because even though you're in lockdown it doesn't mean that everything's bad yeah I think within every crisis there's an opportunity Absolutely. um, there's blessings everywhere if you you can learn to see them and to capitalize on them for lack of better words exactly 
That's awesome. Well, thanks for joining and thanks for coming on. And um, thanks so much for having me. Is there any final things you wanted to share? Anything you wanted to give to people as a an ending note? An ending note. Well, this is not goodbye. See you later. <laughs> if you um, you know, if you resonated with anything I said and you want to stay in touch, you can follow me on Instagram. That's how Luke Ray and I connected. And at Mindfulness Matters, where I share mindful tips, but also stuff about my life lately. It's been a lot of wedding stuff. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of wedding spam, but you know, it's all it's all part of it. I believe that work and life should be integrated and that to me creates a lot of fulfillment um and then you know we have a newsletter and like i mentioned the mindfulness toolkit so a lot of great ways we can stay in touch and i guess as a parting kind of saying or mantra and i've shared a lot of my beliefs in this podcast but something that i wholeheartedly believe is you're exactly where you need to be and if that means that you're like in a peak moment or you're in a crisis moment, there's things to receive and lessons to learn in both of those. So it's about really just starting where you are, no matter what age, um, you know, any sort of situation that you're in is like, you're exactly where you need to be. There's lessons that you need to learn and that everything is happening for you, not to you. Beautiful. I love that. And I'll put all the information in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me.